Hello fellow adventurers and welcome back to the Nerd Lab where we transform our gaming passion into incredible game designs and learn how to nerd like a boss. My name is Marvin and I am an ambitious game designer on my quest to develop a cooperative fantasy card game. For this podcast my vision is to take you with me on this exciting journey. Together we will explore the secrets of different game mechanics and reach the next level as a game designer. Last week I saw the documentary movie The Game Designers by Eric Rail, which was successfully funded uh, through Kickstarter and Indiegogo. First of all, I can really recommend watching the movie because it covers a lot of great game designers. Um, some of them have already been guests on this show as well. And they give you a lot of advice and you see how they approach game design. And you learn also a little bit about the, the game design industry. The documentation is about five different game designers and their process of creating new games. With Antoine Bausa and Matt Leacock, the designers of Seven Wonders and Pandemic, two very, very successful designers are part of the movie. Um, but with Kelly North Adams, Christian Falkenberry and Doug Shepherds, also three less known designers are showing off their work. And I really, really like the mix here. What becomes really obvious in this documentary is the span between successful game designers uh, who are celebrated like pop stars at conventions and the hobby designers who have to fight for every playtester, every backer of their project and every follower. That made me think a lot personally. Um, each of the designers interviewed in the movie said it is extremely difficult to almost impossible to make a living as a full-time game designer. On the other side of the spectrum, you have games like Dominion, Gloomhaven or Pandemic that are sold millions of times. Or even whole development teams employed at companies like Wizards of the Coast and Fantasy Flight Games, which release new content for their ongoing games um, and sell it successfully over many years. These differences in success and income are nothing special. They can of course be found in other industries as well, but it seems to me that the range of success in the board game industry is extremely high and the number of really successful games is rather low. That's why I decided to use this episode today to take a bit of a closer look at the board game industry with the goal to derive what makes games successful from an economic point of view. If I look at an industry, I always uh, approach it from, from the history because I want to learn how the industry evolved in the, in the past and where this could lead to in the future. If we look briefly into the past of the board game industry, there are, of course, a number of games that were extremely successful. There is, for example, The Game of Life, produced in the 60s, sold millions of times. Um, it isn't a fair game, it isn't a strategic masterwork, nor is this game um, very good. Um, it's pretty luck-driven um, from today's perspective. It would probably not even be very successful if it would be produced today. But in the 60s and 70s, there was nothing like it. There was just no competition. There are a lot of other games that would fit this explanation as well. For example, Risk, Monopoly, Trivial Pursuit or Cluedo. Um, they were incredibly popular because they were ahead of their time, even if they are not particularly good games from a modern board game perspective. But we need to be grateful um, because um, they formed 
the industry. And I think it's well deserved that these games are still sold well today, even though I personally cannot really do anything with uh, the 250s uh, Monopoly-themed game, for example. Um, but from an economic point of view, they were all very, very successful games, uh, despite their very bad BGG ratings, which is the, all of these games have today. In 1995, uh, game Settlers of Catan was released, and this really uh, started the revolution of the Euro games. These games were um, nice, they were family-friendly, they had a very nice theme, for example, farming or landscape building, and they really improved on the aspects that... Um, went wrong in the older games. They reduced the element of luck, for example, and they ensured that no player is eliminated before the end. And especially Settlers of Catan from Klaus Teuber was the first and very successful game in this category. Um, I think it sold more than 22 uh, million copies in 30 different languages, which is quite a lot, isn't it? If we compare the history of board games with the actual state of the industry, there's a huge difference. Because there are no longer just a few games out there that are very successful, but there are very many games um, of which only the tip of the iceberg are absolute blockbusters. Therefore, the biggest concern of some people in the industry has been whether or not we are in a bubble that will burst at some point. I personally think that is not the case. First of all, because board games are typically not a form of investment that you buy with the goal of selling them later profitably, like stocks, real estate or even comic books. The best answer to the question um, of whether or not we are in a bubble um, that I have seen is from BoardGameGeek. It um, was a thread um, and it compared uh, the board game industry with the movie industry. First, it is a fact that the number of new games coming out each year exploded. And the result of it is simple. You as an individual cannot play all of the available games anymore. The market is no longer a niche market in which everybody played every game or at least knew about most of them. Some years ago, it was easy um, as a consumer to keep up with everything that was released during a year. Everyone in the hobby shared a common experience in terms of being aware of uh, all of the relevant games. Nowadays, it is impossible to keep up with all of the releases. The result is that it has come, become harder and harder for the gaming community to share overlapping experiences. Um, like movies and books, uh, board games are no longer a hobby in which you can consume all of the content being created. Um, much like nobody watches every single movie or book that is being released. For me, that means the targeting just becomes way more important as a board game designer. You can no longer release games without a very good understanding of your target audience um, because the competition is much harder. But I will come back to that later on. But the sheer number um, of games is only one side of the coin. Um, not only the number of games increased dramatically, but also the number of players and with it the number of sales. And that's actually a very good sign um, of a healthy industry. Uh, let's have a look at some numbers of the modern board game industry. Today, around about 5,000 games are released every year. 
to compare that with the history, in the 70s there were just a few hundred games per year. And even in the year 2000, only about 1,250 games per year were published. So the number of new games per year has quadrupled in the last 20 years alone. Um, the numbers are here from uh, BoardGameGeek and the new entries per year. Um, but also the annual growth in sales um, is between 10 and 20% in the last couple of years, which is um, actually a very solid number. And when it comes to customers, we can also have a look at the BoardGameGeek users um, as an indicator. Um, the numbers that I found are from 2018. Maybe there are newer ones, but it doesn't matter for what I want to show. In 2018, BoardGameGeek had 1.6 million members. But the interesting aspect is that when BoardGameGeek grew to 1 million, there was a report that stated that 20% of the BoardGameGeek members, so 200,000, were added in just the previous 12 months. That means the consumers of board games um, are increasing rapidly as well. The effect that I just described is very well known from other industries, especially from how media consumption changed with the rise of the internet. Uh, the effect is called the long tail. And there's also a book by Christian Anderson that I read a few years ago, which is also called The Long Tail. And The Long Tail explains why a lot of different niche goods tend to outsell fewer hit products. I mean, there is a reason why Amazon has millions of millions of products and not only the few best-selling ones. And there is also a reason why billions of videos are stored on YouTube. The sum of a huge number of popular products can outsell a small number of evergreen hits. The reason uh, why we see this effect is simple. It is easier than ever to produce your own movies, books or music and self-publish them. Everyone can now produce their own content. The tail is getting longer. I mean, the effect is quite simple. It's easier to produce content or products and um, so we have more of them in the market and the tail becomes longer and longer with each uh, product that is released. And some smart companies have identified this trend early on um, and have become um, platforms or aggregators. And these aggregators make accessing these new mass market of niche products easier, which increases their profit and makes the tail not, not only longer because there are more products, but also fatter because it's easier to access those uh, niche products um, and so there is more sales for this niche product. That means more attention is brought to this niche product. Um, for videos, for example, this aggregator is YouTube. For books, um, it is Amazon and for board games, it is Kickstarter. We do not only see more niche products, we also see more of the market share transferred to this product. Um, and crowdfunding has really lowered the barrier of entry for people trying to break into the board game industry. I mean, there are games that funded $50,000 in three minutes, like Dark Souls, and um, ended up with $4.2 million um, overall funding. And there are even more successful games like Exploding Kittens, which uh, launched on Kickstarter in 2015 and raised more than 8.8 .8 million in 30 days and um, has sold more than 2.5 million games um, until now. Um, and 
a game from the last year, for example, is a Tainted Grail, The Fall of Avalon, which uh, more than 6 million. In total, the tabletop games category, which includes board games, hobby miniature games, card games and tabletop role-playing games, um, increased by almost 20% from 2017 to 2018, which is an increase of 27 million from one year to another. Um, and in total, um, all the tabletop games, um, all the campaigns in that uh, genre raised $165 million. Um, that's an all-time high for the Kickstarter platform and um, is by far the most successful um, genre on Kickstarter. There are more than... 3,000 new games on Kickstarter alone every year and on average they earn more than $70,000. The result is that it is easier than ever to create and publish a board game. The number of games increase and those games become way more focused on the interests of smaller groups. First of all, this is a good thing because it allows players to grab games that really match their preferred playstyle and theme. But on the other side, the target audience becomes smaller and smaller, up to a point at which designers might not earn enough to make a living from designing games. And that's why I think you cannot narrow down your target audience too much. For me, the target audience plays a very important role in the success of a board game. With a growing player base, also the demographic distribution of players has changed considerably in the last years. In the past, there were families who played games with their children and nerds who played Dungeons and Dragons, Magic and Warhammer. But today, there are significantly more women and significantly more couples playing games. If you want to reach these target groups, you have to adapt your theme and rules accordingly. This concerns the length of the game, the complexity and the number of players. Pandemic is a good example of a game that targeted this audience very well. It is inclusive, it is very friendly and it is a cooperative game. Co-op games are also another trend of the last years in the board game industry. In times of the long tail effect, um, there is certainly a market for every target group. But if you want to have a certain uh, reach, you have to think about how to address the largest possible target group without being too unspecific compared with your competitors. That means knowing and designing for your target audience is crucial. Reaching your target audience is another very important part of successful games and maybe the most important determining factor whether a Kickstarter campaign is successful or not. How to be successful on Kickstarter is a huge topic that I definitely cannot cover today, but one aspect that is related to what I already talked about is um, the role of reviews and word-to-mouth. The internet has vastly accelerated the word-of-mouth on which the tabletop industry relies. Uh, since there is so much competition you need the attention of the consumers. And as a first-time publisher, this can be really, really difficult. The challenge of finding enough uh, supporters for your Kickstarter campaign is also um, a topic of the Game Designers documentary I mentioned in the beginning of this podcast. 
and it shows really well how difficult it can be for newer designers to find enough people to back their projects. Because on Kickstarter you do not compete against other self-publishers, you uh, also have to compete against the, the large brands or they, that uh, already have their audience from previous campaigns or previous games they published um, and they really know their audience already and they know the games that they need to make and the content they need to produce in order to match the expectations from their target audience. Combined with a huge network of reviewers, influencers and a lot of marketing budget, um, it is possible to draw a lot of attention to a specific game for a few weeks during the Kickstarter campaign. And as a first-time publisher, you have to compete against these large companies that are also on Kickstarter. And this can be really, really difficult to stand out. The question that I asked myself in the beginning was, what makes a board game successful? And I think that not only the game must be very good, but it must also have some kind of reach. That means um, you already need some kind of audience and you really need to be able to target the right audience. Um, and for that, you need um, a lot of marketing budget, a lot of uh, connections in the industry, so a large network and a good marketing concept, of course. That means altogether, I think marketing is a very important um, aspect of producing a very successful game. What is also important for the financial success of a board game is the business model. In today's industry, it is no longer possible to produce a product and then rely on its sales for the upcoming years, as it has been with uh, Risk or Monopoly, for example. For this form of evergreen content, the competition is just too strong and the attention span of people is uh, way too short. Um, that's why most games try to come up with some form of regular expansions today. Um, let's ha have a look at the different models that are out there. Um, first of all, you have these kind of regular games um, where everything is released in one box, um, everything is included, um, you have a one-time payment by the customer and um, if the game is very successful, there can be, for example, rebranded versions of the game, something like Pandemic Cthulhu Edition or other forms of special editions. Uh, often there are adapted versions for more of your players, for example, Seven Wonders Duel as an expansion for Seven Wonders. Um, but there are also sometimes simpler versions only that only use dice or cards. For example, there's Pandemic The Cure. Um, and there are sometimes legacy versions of the game. For example, Pandemic Legacy, Risk Legacy or Eon's End Legacy. Most of the time these expansions are themed new versions. But they still most of the time are played as a standalone game. Uh, on rare occasions, if the games were very successful there will be regular expansions um, adding new roles events um, also onto the game to increase the replayability of the core game but typically um, in this category of games the expansions are not part of the initial business model in total contrast, we have also the collectible card games. Their entire business model is designed around expansions. They basically ask their players to purchase more and more packs of cards 
um, in order to collect the entire set um, or even multiple sets of the available cards. And then there will be new sets um, and people have to buy new packs to get uh, to collect these cards. Uh, there was a real hype about that business model in the 90s because of the success of Magic the Gathering, Yu-Gi-Oh! and Pokemon, but um, most competitors are no longer in print today. And with the exception of a very few games um, that I just mentioned, um, people tend to dislike the business model today um, because they have to spend a lot of money on, yeah, on gambling. I personally still love the collectible card game genre. Um, I love to collect things. I love to um, open packs with random content and to collect stuff in binders. But um, the industry has moved on. And I'm really looking forward to see if we will come back to this collectible card game model in the future. Um, I think it could be possible. But um, for now... Uh, we have other business models in the market. For example, um, the living games, um, where the story of the game is going on over several expansions. As an answer to the declining market demand for new collectible card games, Fantasy Flight Games came up with the term living card games. And um, games that use these models are, for example, the Netrunner card game or um, the Lord of the Rings card game or... Uh, Arkham Horror card game as well and um, the difference between this and um, the collectible card games for example is that it puts less pressure on consumers um, and allowing them to collect but at their own pace and without affecting the fun of the game. Um, what that means is instead of opening packs with random content you buy a complete expansion with all of the cards from that expansion and you open it and you're ready to play. There's no um, luck involved in the cards that you get for your money. But from a company's perspective or a publisher's perspective, you still have this steady income stream from one game that you can use to produce no new content over and over again. This model gets rid of um, the trading aspect. It is a little bit less intrusive and players can more or less move at their own speed. The next category um, of business models is one that I called multiple expansion games and it's quite similar to the living card games. Um, it is especially used in deck building games. Let's take Dominion as an example for the entire deck building genre. The core game is functional on its own. The consumer only buys the core box and can play a huge number of times. It doesn't ask the player to make additional add-on purchases to achieve a complete game. Um, there are, however, multiple expansions for the game that immerse players even further in the world and add more options for, uh, for the gameplay. Expansions add new combos, new synergies and new themes and therefore enhance the replayability. And this is especially true for the deck building genre because the games typically don't last too long. What means you want to play it over and over again to see what kind of combos you can achieve this time. Um, the same is true for dungeon crawling games that also rely on their replayability and a diverse experience with each playthrough. So most of the living card games add new expansions to um, bring new quests and new story elements to the game. Um, these multiple expansion games 
of course are very similar but for me they add expansions to um, bring new combos and um, synergies to the game by increasing the overall card pool and often the possibilities of cards that can be used for the real match. So the card pool increases, but the um, cards that you really use during one specific game um, remains the same. So it's just more variance that you add to the game. And then you have the really, really big box games like Gloomhaven or Descent um, that come with a huge campaign um, that promise um, that you can play hundreds of hours and um, compared to the other games I talked about they are often way more expensive um, in the initial as the initial price. A good marketing campaign and the targeting is important for the initial success of a game but the business model can be even more important when you look at the long-term uh, financial success of a game. If you want to design a living game that has a lot of expansion potential, you have to take that into account from the very beginning because not only the business model needs to be appropriate, but also the game mechanics. The gameplay must feel complete at its core, so in the core game, but it also needs to be easily combined with new material as the game continues to live and grow over time. Smash Up is a good example where the core mechanics of the game uh, match really well with the uh, business model. In Smash Up you build your deck with which you play by putting together two different races, alliances or however you may call them. Uh, for example, you pick the pirate and you pick the dinosaurs and then you play the pirate dinosaur deck. And if there is an expansion that adds um, aliens to the mix, you can play the pirate aliens, for example. So you can combine every new alliance with each other. There is a lot of potential for upcoming expansion. That is exactly what the game does. It adds new alliances over time. What most of these business models somehow try to achieve is to increase the shelf life of the games by delivering regular expansions. In video games we have the same trend with microtransactions and subscription models and um, I'm really curious to see what kind of new business models um, will evolve in the board game industry. Um, for example, Keyforge has some kind of new business model from my perspective. And I'm really um, interested to see where they will stand in the market from in maybe two or three years from now. And also the legacy games are some kind of new business model because you will definitely play the game only for one playthrough. I'm really curious to see what kind of disruptive business models will come up in the future. I personally would love to see some renaissance of the collectible card game genre um, as a business model, but uh, we'll see how that will work out. And that's it for today's episode. I know this episode was a bit different um, than usual. Um, if this was your first episode, you should know that I typically don't look at the industry from a bird eye perspective. Actually, I do the opposite by diving deep into mechanics, themes and uh, specific games instead. However, after watching the Game Designer documentary, I just had the feeling to step back and take a closer look at the industry as a whole. 
I hope the show was entertaining for you um, as well, even if it was a bit different than usual. If you want to see what kind of games I play in my spare time or see some of my own very ugly prototypes, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter with the hashtag NerdLikeABoss. And you could also join the NerdLab community. The links can be found in the show notes. Um, we are a group of very helpful game designers. And if you have any questions, we will happily um, help you to um, answer them and solve any kind of roadblocks that are in your way of creating a great board game. Until next week, keep disrupting the industry and nerd like a boss.